Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra as always with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. I don't want to do it, Andrew. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I've messaged you this morning. I'll do the podcast if it's about Aston Villa nil, Arsenal 1 from two weeks ago. Can we talk about that, that time all those things, please. The good things, the good times, when the grass the was green. Remember the singing. I remember Bernd Leno, how happy he was. <laughs> Let's just do a podcast about that every week from now until May. Welcome, Is that all right? Welcome Did, to What the... do you guys think at home? You're all nodding. <laughs> Uh, I know how you're feeling. I do. I understand. I think everyone listening knows how you're feeling as well. It's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it, it, there's a lot to unpack and a lot to get through and a lot of feelings. I'm feeling a lot of feelings. Um, I tell you a funny thing. Go on. So basically, as you know, this Arsenal, well, like you as well, is kind of intertwined with work at this point. You know, it's all yeah. bound together. Yeah. And so sometimes, I kind of kid myself that I can compartmentalise it. So on, after Saturday, um, I was feeling really disappointed, really deflated. Mm. And then I thought, do you know what? I'm just not going to think about Arsenal on Sunday and I'll just get through my day and have a lovely weekend. And I, and I, and I kid myself that I have that capacity. <laughs> and then yet yeah, inexplicably... On Sunday, I'm just inexplicably in a really bad mood, <laughs> even though I'm pretending that I'm not thinking about Arsenal. I'm like, well, it can't be Arsenal because I'm, I'm not thinking about that, and yet yeah. it's still there, bleeding into the edges of my consciousness. Yes, 
I, I, I get it. I know when we were chatting on WhatsApp on Saturday, we made the arrangements, you know, we'll do usual time on Monday. Yeah, great. Listen, yeah. enjoy your Sunday. Have a good Sunday. You know, it, it'll all be fine if you don't think about our. So I tried to do something quite similar myself, and I used wine to, to ah. sort of um, alleviate some of the, the things I was feeling. And now I'm feeling the things again and also feeling pretty shite. Um, mm. It's on backfired. a Monday morning, it's, it's backfired in in spectacular fashion. But that's what you don't remember as well is that at some point late last night, you were talking very intently, probably to your wife, about the, all the problems with Alexandra Lacazette. <laughs> just <laughs> very drunkenly being like, the thing is, he just doesn't move enough, you know. Um, <laughs> And you're, you're like, yeah, I'm so, staying off Arsenal today. It's so easy for the central defenders to <laughs> deal with him. Because, you know, frankly, if you were a central defender, you'd be fine just to go, oh, you do what you want, like I said, I'll stand around here. That yeah. kind of thing. I, 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 it's, it's, it's possible those kind of conversations happen. Although I Play did. on Mondays, I think, yeah. you know. Then, then we at least get our weekends. That's, you know... Yeah. yeah, and look, it's it's not a good weekend because other bad things happened as well, but we won't dwell on those. Um, yeah, where 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 do we start with this? You were there, you were working, you were at the game. Yeah. And I thought what Mikel Arteta said afterwards was quite interesting about, you know, he's, he's stressed the connection between the fans and the players and the team and, and, and getting an atmosphere inside the Emirates, which I think for the most part, He's done really well, or it has been done well throughout this season, right? Um, mm. But he talked about we generated a, a cold atmosphere, and I think he was referring, obviously, to how the team played. Like, if you come out of the blocks quickly and you have a couple of shots in the opening five minutes, everyone's a bit fired up. But it, it felt strangely flat. Maybe that was entirely to do with the kind of performance that it was and the the I think the expectation that there was going to be a reaction to what happened against Crystal Palace and there didn't seem to be that kind of uh, reaction or there, there wasn't um, but early on it was quite evident that there wasn't so I mean just curious as to your thoughts on on how it all started and that cold atmosphere that he he mentions yeah he mentioned it early in his press conference and um I went back and asked him about it. You'll notice, by the way, journalists in press conferences do a thing where they go, yeah, I actually asked him about that, and I've started doing that now. I'm going to be doing a lot of that. So listen out for that over the coming months. Um, you'll see it in tweets. I'll do it on the podcast. Yeah, I actually asked him about that. Um, I, I was talking to Mikel Arteta on Saturday, yeah. and Mikhail I just I ran it past he him. He told yeah. me this. No, but I, I, I did ask him because I thought it was interesting, and I didn't quite know what he meant. And he said, um, we created it. The mm. fans were here and they were exceptional. And you can see the moment when we gave them something, what we tried, but we played a game where you could not see the purpose or the intention of what the team was trying to do. Mm. And what can they do? Meaning the fans, nothing. We have to give them something and we didn't give them anything in the first half. And this is down to us. Mm. I mean, pretty clear, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah I have to be honest. I think there was an anxiety. I think there was anxiety in the ground after everything that had happened against Palace. I think about the injuries, mm. probably about the starting lineup, mm. and I think there was anxiety among the players too. And you know, Brighton on paper 
was the perfect opponent. Seven games without a win, six consecutive defeats before a draw with Norwich, I think oh, I'm right in saying. That's and the really... worst opponent for Arsenal to have. You should know this by now. This is, this is the worst. Well, I'd rather play a team that's won their last 10 games than play a team that's lost eight in a row. I've got some bad news to you about Southampton. Oh, no, don't tell case. me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, 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 uh, that's why I said on paper, on yeah. grass, very, very different. And Sure. They, uh, Brighton had nothing to lose. And Arsenal looked like a team who suddenly realised they have so much to lose. Mm. Um, and I think that did play into the atmosphere from all sides. But I do like, at least, that the manager... I remember previous managers being a bit like, you know, the crowd have got to meet us halfway. And I like it when a manager's like, no, the team have got to do it. Yeah. The team have got to give you something to cheer. And they didn't do it. And that's accurate. They mm. didn't in that first half. No, they didn't. They didn't. So um, we, we have to... I think you're right to say that team selection played a part in that because not only... Well, I mean, if Arsenal had just posted the, the team lineup, right? People might have said, ooh, you know what? Could be Saka at left back. But they posted the team lineup and said, it's Xhaka at left back. <laughs> and everyone was a bit like... Oh, did, they? did yeah. they? Was that actually in the tweet? That was it. I'm almost positive that was in the tweet. Let me just have a look here. I uh, don't think it was. I think it, I might be wrong, but I, I think he was. it was in that list. It was in that order that suggested that. Was it like that? I'm going to check now. Hang on. Let's have a look here. You're right. Xhaka starts at left back. Yeah. So I'm not sure that helped. And look, I'm not blaming the social media admin or anything like that, but... That's very unusual, you know. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Because I don't think, you know, Mikel writes that list. Do you know what I mean? No, I don't think he writes that tweet. No. I'm sure they just get a list of names. So they must have checked or asked or... I guess so. Good to let Brighton know, isn't it? Yeah. That's that's another aspect of it, uh, I suppose. Um, Um, Because I I saw the list of names, mm. and I have to be honest, I, 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 I didn't think it was necessarily Shaka at left back. I was like, there's a couple of other ways they could do mm. this. Um, one was Saka. The other thing I did think was, could it be like a back three with maybe Shaka in it, but then Saka as a wing back mm. or something like that. But um, no, Shaka at left back it was. The yeah. social media admin was well informed there. Um, and yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. I think... I know they went to that at half-time against Palace, but we spoke about that after mm. the game and there were other options. I think I was in the bring Rob Holding in, stick Cedric out there camp. Um, mm. I think I might still be in that camp. So, I mean, yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll come to that, yeah. Um, Nuno Tavares, of course. I mean, you know, Arteta was asked about him in the press conference. I, I spoke to people who were in that press conference and said, were you convinced by his... Tavares uh, talk up before the game and they were like, well, he was kind of asked about it and said the right things. It wasn't necessarily like he went out of his way to say, yeah. I've got great faith in the player or anything like that. What What do you think picking Xhaka at left back means for Nuno Tavares at this point? Because we saw last season, and I know it was a slightly different situation, but Xhaka at left back... It was okay for a couple of games, but we had to do a lot to make it sort of work. And then it didn't work. You know, it stopped working. And I think everybody was, you know, this isn't a criticism of Shaka, by the way. Um, I think he does his best. And, and it's not necessarily that he is 
a, a terrible, terrible left back. But when you've lost Thomas Partey, you need Granit Xhaka in midfield. I think that was the general consensus that people had before the game. Was like you need Xhaka in midfield. And um, it says, a, I mean, I'm, I'm reluctant to go all in on this because we've seen time and time again that sometimes what you think about a player or a player's future or, or, or place at a club can change really quickly. You know, they can be very far out and then they can be right back in. Um, that's just the nature of football. But I think when you don't have Thomas Partey, when Shaka's presence is absolutely needed in midfield and you still pick Granit Xhaka at left back, it says a lot about what faith or lack of faith Mikel Arteta has in Tavares. Yeah, I think trust is the thing. I think Arteta trusts a very small group of players at Arsenal. Very small. And we know who they are. There's 12 of them, <laughs> basically. Mm. Um it's the strongest versus 11, well, 13, I guess. You know, you'd say Cedric and, you know, one of Smithrow and Martinelli. And that's the group that he uses if he can avoid anything else. And he basically picked from that group in this game. Mm. But it meant slightly shoehorning one or two in. Um, the Shakra left back thing, I, I, would, I would be curious to go back. Uh, I mean, I don't want to do this. Doubtless the <laughs> Athletic will make me to go back and watch the sort of trajectory of Shaka at left-back last season. Mm. I have I have a memory of it sort of very much not working in very important game like the Villarreal game. Yeah. But that it was sort of moderately successful to a point before that. And I guess Arteta felt it's he's go, he wants to go back to that. I just think it was about trust. I think ultimately he didn't trust Tavares mm. and he trusted Shaka and... He tried to have his cake and eat it as well. I don't know how evident this was on TV pictures, but in the ground, it was very evident that Shaka was playing the role in an unusual fashion, um, that he was kind of stepping forward mm. and narrow into midfield in the second phase of the game a lot. And I think ultimately Arsenal paid a price for that, given his positioning on the uh, opening Swansea goal. But he was spending a lot of time... Brighton. Ah, Brighton. <laughs> all the baby teams all bleed into yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Graham Potter teams, but they, yeah, um, they, yeah, he was spending a lot of time in the middle of the pitch, and it was almost like, yeah, he's ostensibly playing at left back, but we're going to ask him to help out in midfield when he can, and it, it just didn't really work. At yeah, all. it no, it didn't work. It left the team way too imbalanced and without any real control in uh, in central midfield, which I think you know, played a part in um, obviously the goal that we conceded, but just the overall lack of performance in that first half. I'm just looking at it here. Um, looking at the goal again. Like he's gone forward to track his guy and he's sort of standing still and then the ball goes over Samby, over Smith Rowe, and that's where the cross comes from. And uh, it's not great. Is it from... Maybe Odegaard, maybe... There's not a lot of tracking happening at all. None. 
There is none. There's three Brighton players I seem to recall on the edge of the box. Yeah, Cedric gets drawn in. I mean, he has to go with the runners there. And Saka and Odegaard are, are not really doing enough to get back in. Whether they would have got there or not, I don't know. But I think you need to see a bit more effort in those situations from those players. Because, yeah, penalty spot, tidy finish, that guy's face. Ugh. But, I mean, should we be... Okay, right. Hang on. Yep. That's lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah, but should we be surprised if the defensive instincts of Martin Odegaard or Emil Smith-Rowe in those kind of central midfield areas aren't what we'd hoped for? I mean, these roles were, particularly in Odegaard's case, a bit unfamiliar mm. for them. He was playing deeper, definitely. Um, and, and to be honest, that's the thing about the Shaka at left-back thing. It, it's not that Shaka was diabolical as a left-back in the first half. I do think his positioning, which was clearly instructed by Tata, gave us some issues. But mm. for me, it was the it was the domino effect of that. It was the yeah. knock-on through the team. And I, I thought particularly Martin Odegaard taking his pressing, his creativity out of our attacking play, putting him so much deeper, you know, creating a distance between him and Saka, which has been the key partnership in everything good we've done since Christmas. Mm. Uh, it was a kind of knock-on effect. And Brighton got the lead, but it was 28 minutes on the clock at that point, and we had not threatened at all, really, no. as far as I can remember. No, I don't think so. Was there maybe one Martinelli run that ended with a corner? Had Gabriel had that header? I think he had a yeah. header from a corner, perhaps? I can't oh, remember. oh uh, it was... Uh, Saka uh, kick from deep. Yeah, they right. played it short and he lifted it to the far post. Not sure if this was before or after the Brighton goal, but yeah, he headed it into the near side netting. Do you remember? Just. Yes. It was, it was quite a good chance, actually, if he could have got sort of round the ball yeah, a bit more. He's usually uh, quite good. It was just before the goal, actually. Was it, it was just before 27 minutes so uh, or 26 minutes. so And he is usually pretty decent in the air. He scored a good few goals yeah. for us as well. So it is one of those moments where, um, where yeah, maybe the game takes a, a slightly different trajectory. But you want him to go back across goal, really, because then yeah. if he doesn't go in, you know, hit somebody or something yeah. comes of it. But, yeah, uh, you know, we had been really flat until that mm. point. And I was kind of thinking this looks like one of those games where you've just got to get into half-time and, you mm. know, address the issues. And then obviously everything was compounded by the fact Brighton took the lead. Um, and, you know, it might have been a very different day, I guess, were it not for the VAR call. I think a goal at that point would have been more than we deserved, but it would have given us a hell of a platform going into the second half. For sure. Like, it, um, it wouldn't have changed anything about our performance or even what I felt we needed to do as a team uh, going into the second half, but obviously it would have changed the scoreline in a very significant way. Uh, and that, you know, that scoring a goal just uh, just on the break and, um, you know, Brighton conceding a goal just on the break as well, would that have changed the momentum? Would that have, you know, given us a, a shot in the arm and given them a, a kick in the bollocks, if you like? Um, how do you view that VAR um, decision? Because... I've watched it and watched it and watched it, and I can't conclusively see that he is offside. He may well be, and I think he probably is, based on the movement and based on what I'm guesstimating from the uh, body shape and body position of the defender who was in front of the goalkeeper. But 
I can't conclusively say he's offside. And the thing about these offside VAR decisions is, like, normally it's like, okay, look, his left toenail is offside. This is patently ridiculous. Mm. However, by the letter of the law, you know, he's offside. So goal disallowed. And people might not like it, but they can understand it because that is applicable to every situation like that. I think this is one of the first ones that I've ever seen where there's been no conclusive TV angle or line drawn which shows 100% that Martinelli is offside. I agree with you. I think that, uh, I mean, the on-field decision should have stood, and I'm not sure it was correct, but I don't think you could convincingly prove otherwise. Yeah. And I think the kind of, the burden of proof is... I actually don't really know what that phrase meant. Shouldn't have used it. <laughs> <laughs> the burden of well, proof. I mean, I you, Your Honour. Is, is on VAR, right? VAR has to make it... It has to be a clear and obvious on-field error. And I just don't see how mm. that could be classified as such. Isn't, isn't um, the benefit of the doubt supposed to go to the attacking team in situations like that? Or am I, I just I, dreaming that? I think that's an, an old... I'm not sure that's in the language anymore. But what's right. interesting is that in this instance, clearly the benefit of the doubt went to the defensive team, and that is not in the language anywhere. Yeah, um, it was all. It's almost like they're like, we better disallow this because it might have been offside. Yeah, and that's very much not what either offside or VAR are for. Mm. Um, I'm with you. I think he might have been off, but no one can prove it to me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think when it takes four minutes or whatever it is for the people in the VAR room to, to make a decision, then, you know, you're you're stretching and you're obviously guessing. If it's conclusive, it's conclusive pretty quickly because um, they have all the angles and they've got literally all the possible angles there can be. And if after four minutes they're still umming and oing over what's going on, then... I don't know. You're just guessing. And I, I, I feel like, um, and this isn't to excuse anything about what we did on, on Saturday, but it just feels to me like that's we're the only team that gets that decision to go against us. It feels that way, yeah, for sure. And, yeah, I mean, it, sort of it'll be lost in the annals of time why Gabriel Martinelli went and hugged Gary O'Driscoll, you know, what that was all about. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a big moment. You know, yeah. it, nothing to excuse the performance or anything like it, but sometimes you need a bit of luck mm. to get you out of a rut, and that might have been Arsenal's, and uh, yeah, they didn't get it. No, they didn't. And the second half wasn't a great deal better, was it? Uh, I know Xhaka moved back into midfield, and we had this strange sort of Martinelli at left-back, but not really at left-back. How was that lining up in the in the stadium when you were looking at it, when, you know, out of possession, what way were we lining up? Was Xhaka dropping back in at left back or, you know, how exactly? uh, Yeah. I mean, we're used to Arteta teams lining up slightly differently in different phases of the game. But I think in both the first half and the second half, that went to a bit of an extreme against Brighton. Um, You know, Xhaka's role was adapting dramatically all the time. If I had to generalise... And it wasn't easy to interpret from where I was sat. I would say it looked like a back three with mm. Cedric playing narrow with White and Gabrielle and then Martinelli and Saka 
as kind of wing backs, essentially. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, we did that or similar against Palace in the second half. Um, we've actually seen a back three uh, used a lot in the second half of games, and I'm sure there'll be questions about whether we might see it used in the first half of a game before long. Um, so we, he did change it. I mean, at half time, I think three players were warming out on the pitch, warming up out on the pitch, and it was Nuno. Pepe and Enketia, I mm. believe I'm right in saying. And there was some chat of like, is one of these guys going to come on? Um, but that didn't happen. We didn't get a sub for, a, you know, until a little bit after half time. I mean, I think it was moderately, moderately more successful, but I don't, I think in the Palace game, it felt like we, we, we really did sort of change the dynamic of the match. Um, I don't think we did that successfully against Brighton. No, I mean, I, I think it was better. There's no question it was better. We weren't making a great deal of um, chances, though. I mean, there was a lot of Cedric crossing. We did have some some moments where I think we could have threatened. Um, Cedric took a free kick, which, you know, when you look at what Martin Odegaard did with the, the free kick from exactly the same position uh, late in the game... You know, I'm, I'm, I don't quite. He better know. be bloody good in training. That's all I'm saying. He's got to be putting these free kicks top corner. Yeah, yeah. Look, Monday I, to Friday. I, look, Odegaard hit the bar, and then Kedia hit the bar with the rebound. But we had another one in in the same position, and they tried a weird kind yeah. of routine. I mean, past. there's a couple of a couple of moments like that 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 just make me a little bit worried about decision-making, whether it's inexperience coming to the fore or whatever it might be. I mean, that uh, the, trying that pass down the line to Martinelli when he should have just had a shot on goal because he's capable, as we've seen this season, of, of really causing uh, goalkeepers problems. He scored a free kick against Burnley, hit the bar uh, against Brighton on Saturday. Um, you know, why we didn't make more of those opportunities. Even Lacazette is, is not a bad free kick taker. And given the complete lack of... Um, firepower that he's bringing to the team at the moment you would you i don't understand why like cedric is being allowed to take a free kick in that situation the late one where we have a corner and the goalkeeper's gone up and he's in the box waiting and we take a short corner and get caught offside i mean it's just so dumb you know small things like that i think are are creeping into our game which you know haven't really been there for the most part i think our decision making in games um you know there are obvious exceptions but it's been pretty good, you know, um, and it, maybe it's pressure, maybe it's tension, maybe it's inexperience, whatever it is. It's 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 hard to know, but they're sort of uncharacteristic, and it's it's also true of this week to an extent is a little bit uncharacteristic in that we we know we've got some shortcomings uh, uh, up top, and we'll talk about those, but we've been pretty good defensively. And we haven't been good defensively this week. We've been really poor defensively this week, and we've been punished pretty harshly. Well, not harshly. We've been punished to the extent you expect to be punished when you're poor defensively. Um, the Brighton second goal as well, not great defending. And again, a guy's on the edge of the box with time to shoot. Um, so we've paid the price for that. We have a bit, yeah. And I, and I think... Um without wishing to be sort of too revisionist, I think generally, as we've kind of improved as an attacking force, which I know might seem absurd to say after this game, but we, mm. you know, we, we certainly did do that through, uh, you know, the first 
few months of the year. I think our defending generally has suffered a little bit. Um, you know, there's, a pretty, there's actually a pretty decent correlation to Tomiyasu getting injured and Arsenal's defence looking slightly less secure. I'm not putting it all on him, mm. but the timing does kind of check out. Um, Brighton's second goal, I actually haven't looked at it from our point of view because I was sort of marvelling at it as a goal. I mean, it was a great goal from their perspective. But yeah, when you think about it, he is completely on his own, isn't he? That yeah, guy. Um, I'm just going uh, to have a look at it here. Mwepu. Mwepu. I mean, they played three in midfield who were all uh, very athletic, very powerful. It was very much the Crystal Palace approach and, and we did mm. slightly struggle to live with it. I thought Mwepu was, was really good. Yeah, um, I'm just looking at it here. So the play comes out to, what's his name? Kukaracha. Not Kukaracha. Kukareya. Kukareya, yeah. Kukareya <laughs> on the left-hand side. Lacazette is there with Mwepu. Play carries on. Lacazette gets drawn into the box. Yeah, it's not good from Lacazette. It's not good from Lacazette because he was there and he got drawn in when the play came in. I think there was other um, other aspects of, of that goal which Mikel Arteta will not be that pleased about. Um, did Sambi get done a bit easily with some movement in the box? Yeah, a bit static. Yeah. I mean, it's still, uh, you know, it's still a one in a million hit for the edge of the box. I, it's I a still very think- good finish. It's a yeah, very no, good. You're finish. pretty unfortunate if someone puts that in the bottom corner. But yeah, Lacazette does get sucked into his own box a bit. He's ball watching a bit there. Um, it's funny we talk about set pieces. I really felt set pieces, although we had some dodgy ones like the short free kick, the short mm. corner. I felt like they were our most threatening moments in the game. Um, you know, we talked about that Gabriel header in the first mm. half, but in the second half, it, it honestly felt like if we were going to get a goal, it's probably going to be from a corner. I actually, think yeah. Brighton struggled a little bit on that front and. Sanchez is a good goalkeeper, but he doesn't come off his line much. And um, that looked like where we might sort of scrabble something, uh, but it didn't happen in the end. I mean, yeah. what did you think about the substi- uh, substitutions? I think Eddie Nketiah was the first man on, wasn't he? Yeah, he came on for Smith-Rowe. Um, I think Smith-Rowe, I mean, is he injured? He doesn't look 100%. Um, I think he had mm. a poor game. Um, and he wasn't alone, obviously, but... Uh, it, I don't think it's his best position either, to be honest. No, with you. I mean that's maybe we've got a question about that in the second half, uh, second mm-hmm. half of the show. So we'll we'll um, we'll talk about that. But yeah, and Keddy up for Smith Rowe, um, and then what was the other one? It was Pepe for who did Pepe come on for? Martinelli. Uh, Martinelli, maybe. yeah. Um, which was surprising to me, but I think he was. He'd picked up a knock or he was cramping. At one point, one of the Brighton players was helping him out with the old, you know, the cramp leg thing where you hold your leg oh, up. really? And, yeah. So maybe he had an injury because um, I was sort of astonished that Lacazette stayed on the pitch. But if Martinelli was injured, that might go some way to explaining it. Um, I mean, Eddie looked quite sharp. He had a very good header um, from a Cedric yeah. Cross, which keeper made a very, really good save from. Um and this was just after the goal, um, the Odegaard free kick, which I mentioned, which he then knocked off the bar, shades of Everton a little bit, I guess. Um, those are supposed to be like his bread and butter kind of thing, but that's was well, the second game in a row he's hit the bar. Um, mm. And then Martin Odegaard scores a goal, and there's a bit of mayhem in the last six or seven minutes of, of uh Injury time and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Enkedia header I mentioned, but too little too late, really. 
Yes, it was interesting, you know, when Odegaard got that goal, I mean, he was, uh, a lot of frustration came out mm. of him in that celebration. And it was like the stadium kind of came to life. That cold atmosphere that Arteta spoke about and that we spoke about at the start just evaporated and it was replaced by a sense of urgency and belief both from the stands and on the pitch. But in truth, I don't I don't think that five minutes or so was really representative of the game. I no. think had we somehow nicked something, I mean, it would have been very valuable to us, a point, given the position we were in, but it would not have been a, a reflection of our performance. And it was a very concerning uh, display all round. We looked like a team who uh, had lost a, a good deal of confidence, I think, mm. um, you know, I, and, and of course, we can't see into their heads. We don't know. But it felt like the injuries, as well as the Crystal Palace result, have impacted the group. That That's what it looked like to me. I think they looked short of belief. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I can understand them missing Thomas Partey. I can understand them missing Kieran Tierney. Uh, but I do think... In situations like this, I, you know, I get, like you say, we can't see inside Mikel Arteta's head, but I guarantee you all week his brain was whirring, whirring, whirring overtime, thinking about what he was going to do without Tierney in particular um, in light of the, the Tavares display against Crystal Palace. I just think maybe sometimes he looks to strengthen the area in which we are weakest at the expense of keeping us strong where we could be as strong as we could possibly be and then maybe doing things to offset, you know, that area of weakness, if you like. And, and you know, we spoke maybe before the game about, well, look, if you bring Sambi in for Partey, which was the obvious change, you sit Shaq in midfield, he is deeper, he can support Nuno, um, he's got that experience, he can help talk him through the game a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. That seemed like common sense, but again... We don't know what they think of Nuno's level or his own confidence level or or whatever it might be. But clearly, to imbalance the team in that way, uh, and I know we're coming back to this, it really does say something about what they think of Nuno Tavares and his ability to contribute the way they would like a player to contribute in a home game. Saturday afternoon, sun is shining. It's against Brighton, you know. On paper, on yeah, paper. Exactly. If you can't use him in that game, I just don't know what that says about his potential inclusion in any of the other games. Because now we've made a small squad even smaller. If we've rendered him, I don't mean rendered him, but if if they don't feel like they can use Deemed him, him exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's like. Not only have we lost Partey and Tierney, we've also lost Tavares in in essence. Yeah, true, potentially. I mean, the rehabilitation job uh, grows with every Mm. time he's overlooked. I I think what's interesting, actually, thinking about this game, and I probably haven't articulated this particularly well uh, until now, but although we're talking about Tierney and we're talking about left-back, I actually think Partey was by far the bigger miss in this game. Yes. Yeah. And it was it was taking Shaka out of that area of the pitch. It's not so much Shaka at left back. Yeah. It's Shaka not in midfield. Yeah. Right? I agree, I agree. And Partey was a huge absence. I mean, the amount of times that Ben White and Gabriel had the ball 
and we're either knocking it round between each other, not being able to find a forward pass, mm. or giving it to Lakonga, who side foots it straight back to them. In the first half, in particular, we just did not progress the play at all. We no. did not travel up the centre of the pitch, and Party is. Yes, he was poor against Palace, but as a rule, has been brilliant at that um, in the last few months. And I think without that, we really, really struggled. In in some ways, like in some ways, any of the left back solutions I think are acceptable, as long as you can find a way to ensure the middle of the pitch, a crucial, crucial part of the pitch, isn't significantly weakened. And I think. Unfortunately, it was for us at the weekend. Yeah. And, and and as I said, Brighton, you know, they lined up with, uh, I forget the three guys' names, so it was Basuma, Mwepu and uh, Caicedo. Yeah. And they bossed that part of the pitch, really, yeah. especially from a defensive aspect. They were very, very tricky. I guess we have to talk about our centre-forward. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I get that we are not replete with options. But... How big of a problem do you think Alexander Lacazette's form is right now? Because he didn't really offer anything on Saturday. Uh, you know, this is a guy whose so-called strength of late has been his ability to drop in and link up play and bring others into play. And he attempted eight passes. And I think in part that is because we didn't have control in midfield in the first half in particular. Um, You know, so I, I, I acknowledge that we weren't getting the ball forward. And you mentioned Ben White and Gabriel, the amount of times they stood there arms out or rolling the ball under their own feet, looking for some movement ahead of them. It wasn't good enough from a lot of players, but I do think the Lacazette thing is at a, a real tipping point now because it was for me it was always a worry and i know i'm not alone in this and i'm sure you're the same the 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 firepower was always my biggest concern about getting into the top 4 like i don't know how you do it without somebody banging in you know a, a good number of goals for you right and mm-hmm. and arteta can talk about it being a collective issue which it is of course you want everybody to contribute and score goals and create chances and all that kind of thing but the job of a center forward is to score goals. That is literally why you're in the team. And Lacazette doesn't take shots. He doesn't score goals. I mean, is this the kind of performance where even if Arteta has faith in him, if he trusts him, if he views him as a senior player, uh, he's got the captain's armband, all that kind of stuff. Is this the one where you have to say, okay, we've got to do something different now because it's not working with Lacazette up front. Um, and and uh, like we're, we're at a point in our season where something has to change to get us back to where we hope we could possibly get to. Like we've had a very, very damaging week, a really, really damaging week um, on the pitch in terms of results and, and things that have happened elsewhere and our top four hopes such as they were um, now look quite distant unless we can really pull something out of the hat. So, does he have to bite the bullet where Lacazette and say, look, you, as hard as you're trying, it's not working. We've got to go a different direction. I'm not sure he will do that, but I think it's something he should 
<laughs> he should certainly be considering very, very seriously. I mean, I, I've said this many times, but I think if there was an alternative that he deemed um, that he trusted, come back to that key word of trust, I think we'd be seeing it. And I think the fact that we're not uh, tells us as much about what other players are doing at this stage than what Lacazette is doing. Because in the last couple of games, he's done almost nothing. Mm. Um, I think that the, the part of the problem is that we have, to a certain extent, been found out. In that one thing we've done very well recently is build through the centre of the pitch. And that connection, Palace broke it by attacking those central spaces really well, pressing with Conor Gallagher and other things like that. Mm. And it's been broken further by the absence of Thomas Partey. And I think that connection... Partey, Odegaard, Lacazette in the middle of the pitch. When you look at when we've played well in the last few months, has been key. And I feel like the rest of the league have basically cottoned on to that mm. and we're struggling now. And, and, and Lacazette, I'm not saying at all Lacazette is blameless in this, but when a team plays badly, I don't think any position suffers quite like the centre-forward in terms of access to ball, you know, actually being able to get into the game. Now, could he do more? Yes, absolutely. And like, you know, I'm not saying this guy's the perfect solution, but a player who's been linked with Arsenal was Dominic Cavett-Lewin. I saw a bit of Everton's game with United. He didn't play especially well. He didn't get a lot of service, but wow, he ran those channels and he gave, you know, United centre-halves a difficult afternoon by virtue of his physicality. And Lacazette isn't really capable of that. Um, so I think we are suffering in that part of the pitch. I just don't know what the... I don't know what solution Arteta will take credibly enough to change it. But is there an argument to be made that, like, even if it's an imperfect option... Yeah. Even just Eddie and Kedia gives you a bit more... In terms of his movement, his pace, his variety, I, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. not saying I would, I would do it myself. I mean, I, I feel like um, Arteta needs to take maybe a bit of a leap of faith. Um, his well laid plans and all that kind of stuff aren't coming to fruition right now. We've been found out, as you say, the way that we've played has been sussed out. We could see that with with Palace on Monday night, and uh, it was much more difficult, of course, without Partey and Tierney um, against Brighton. So doing something different feels like the only thing he can do. And at least if you try it, I don't know if you get people back on side or people, you know, go, oh, well, okay, at least he tried. But I think they would prefer to see something different than just repeating this the same thing with Lacazette, where mm. like the the weight of evidence is is very much against Lacazette sparking into life and banging in a load of goals between now and the end of the season. So on that yeah. basis, you you've got to do something else. Well, I, 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 listen, we all know Arsenal need a better centre forward, and I think the disparity in quality between our centre forward and Tottenham centre forward could be pretty decisive mm. come the end of the season. Um, 
And unfortunately, January transfer window passed and it wasn't something we were able to address. And, you know, now we're essentially in a holding pattern, waiting for that guy to arrive. Um, I think it. I think it's certainly worth trying something else. I actually think Eddie Nketiah probably has done enough in his last couple of substitute appearances to suggest he could offer something different. It might not be my preferred choice. I might prefer Martinelli, for example. Mm. Um, but I think Eddie's put himself in contention. And I don't think it'd be the worst thing to drop Lacazette. I, I wonder if you would, as in, I wonder if it might benefit him in some ways. I mean, I think back to the first half of the season, there was the period when he wasn't in the side. He came into the side looking fresh and hungry and very determined mm. to win his place back. Maybe there's a, a sense that without significant competition, I don't know, maybe an element of complacency is is in his performances as well. Again, we can't be sure of that, but it's not worth, it's not uh, the worst idea to experiment with that. Yeah. So yeah, I, but if you're asking me what do I think will happen, I think Lacazette will start against Southampton. I th- I'm really confident about that. Really confident. But I don't I think, I don't, th- I don't think he will. I don't think you will. Okay. I don't know how you can put in those kind of performances and expect to keep your place, regardless of how um, senior you are or how much the manager trusts you. You, If you remove the the element of performance from selection, if you remove form from selection, you're never going to get enough from the players on the pitch. Um, the one thing that gives me some hope, if that's the right word, that he might change it, is the amount that he was talking to Lacazette in the game. It was a constant dialogue and he was calling him over so many times to the substitutes bench, you know, giving him instructions, I think evidently about movement. Um, We've already got one slow over. guy at left back. We don't need another one. That's what he was saying. <laughs> and uh, maybe out of that frustration, a change will come. I mean, he was asked very directly about it mm. after the game. James Benj, I think, put the... Uh, the shots on target record to him. And Arteza was pretty emphatic. He said, look, I'm not happy. I'm not happy when we don't score goals. I'm not happy when we don't play well. Mm. For me, it's just about if he trusts the alternatives. And I, and if Arteta doesn't trust somebody, he doesn't pick them. And I'm just not convinced he mm. does. But well, I guess we'll find out. I don't know. I, I, I feel like, you know, sometimes even if you aren't 100% sure you you end up backed into a kind of corner where you have to make those kind of decisions. And I think a week where you've lost two games against Crystal Palace and against Brighton is in some ways that, you know, Mm. where if you do the same thing in the next game and you don't get the result, you're on a hiding to nothing. At least if you try something, then, you know, people will say, look, he tried to address the issue. The issue is obvious. We needed to do something about it. And, you know, Maybe it, you know, maybe it works out. They're, they're, but uh, what, what I would say about this manager is, and I think it's of one of people's frustrations with him. I don't think he's given to abandoning his ideas um, easily. I, you know what I mean? Like I'm not sure he's he he has tended to stick with things. I think in certain cases longer than people would like. Mm. Um, so that's just my hunch, but we'll see. I mean, it'd be fascinating to find out. I, if, if Eddie and Ketia were selected next Saturday, uh, well, he would know what a massive opportunity it was for him, and I would be intrigued to see it mm. um, at this point. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I also think the the absence of Tierney, the absence of Partey, the issue at left-back, which is 
something that he has to think about might well precipitate change as well. That maybe yeah, he doesn't want to. Yeah, maybe he doesn't want to necessarily change things as much. But he he doesn't really have a great deal of choice because he's got to find ways of offsetting uh, the absences and uh, and the the problems that we have. So yeah, and, and simply put, I mean, Eddie has come a lot closer to scoring a goal in the last couple of games than yeah. Lacazette has. I mean, yeah. if you think about hit the bar for thirty yards uh, at Palace, uh, hit the bar in this game, had a header really brilliantly saved it's a brilliant header as well I mean I have to say yeah. it's a fantastic header because he's sort of he's been a bit unlucky and, yeah, to be fair a little so, bit yeah I wonder how we'd be talking about it if that 30 yard shot against Palace goes in off the bar or if that header flies into the top I don't think it'd be a debate yeah do you know what I mean so yeah. there's inches in that so maybe it is a more obvious decision than that I'm making it out to be. Yeah. Well, look, I think we've got quite a few questions on what we might do and, and how we might change things. So we might keep those for, for part two, unless there's anything else that you want to touch on in this particular game. No, Spurs didn't play this weekend, did they? So no, uh, I don't nice. want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no, nothing really. Uh, the only thing I'd say is that um, just uh, sort, of, sort of on the emotional aspect of it, I was really it really came home to me in this game how much collectively as a club we've kind of emotionally invested in this idea of Champions League qualification in the top four like I think there was a lot of pain in the stadium at full time Mm. and it was really palpable you could see it written on the players faces you could hear it from the fans in the stands it's been a hell of a ride and I I hesitate there because I sort of use the past tense and I think it's we have really we all want it so desperately mm. and I think I don't want to speak for everyone but it does feel as if this may be the week in which it kind of got away from us um, yeah everything is to play for technically but this does feel like a week we will on paper yeah on paper it's all to play for I do feel like come the end of the season we'll be talking about this week I, I do have that sense. Yeah, it's it's I, yeah, it's quite an interesting coincidence, though, isn't it? And and like, if I do have any vague hope or any vague hope, I've said this to you, and I've said this on the blog the last couple of days. Like the the way this team <clears throat> fucks with my mood is unbelievable. You know, like when it's good, I'm trying to rein myself in and not think about the devastating potential of Martinelli, Saka, Smith Rowe, Odegaard, mm-hmm. like taking the world by storm. And when it's bad, I, I'm I'm trying to keep myself level and think, well, it's not quite as bad as all that. It feels absolutely fucking terrible today, uh, and it did over the weekend. And, you know, it, it, I think it will prove to be a very damaging week overall. But where we have stumbled this season, we've done it in Paris. Um, we lost to... Everton and, and Manchester United or Manchester United and Everton in, in that sequence. But earlier in the season, we had two draws consecutively against Crystal Palace and Brighton. And everyone was um, up in arms over those results because, you know, the sense was you should do better against teams like Crystal Palace and Brighton. And I think that's fair because if you are going to be a club that gets back into the top four, these are the kind of games that you need to to win or take points from or certainly not lose. So if the pattern continues. We've had two bad results, as we did against uh, Palace and Brighton earlier in the season, as we did against Everton. Um, 
and Man United. Uh, I know we've had some intermittent bad results here and there, but you know you're looking at Liverpool and Manchester City as being the the um, inflictors of those. So these little periods we've had where things have not gone well, they haven't lasted six games seven games you know like we had in that in that previous season where we had that terrible run so I'm hopeful that we can get ourselves back on track and and um, whatever Mikel Arteta does to change the team will also change the fortune so I'm keeping fingers crossed for that um there's my sort Me of too, yeah. very slightly I, I glass half full outlook on things no I, I think there is a bit of a pattern as well of like setbacks um like you say, sort of sticking with us for a little period of time. I mean, it's a, it's almost not worth talking about the very start of the season because it was such a different team. But Everton and United back to back. When we were, were beaten by City at home, we didn't win our next, I think it was four games in all competitions. Mm. We have had these wobbles um, and it's about where we are as a team. I don't think we're good enough to kind of eliminate those. But we have on, on all occasions responded pretty well with consistent runs. Mm. The challenge, of course, is that the fixture list looks quite tricky in what's left of the season and we are missing a number of key players yeah. at this point, which I don't think we've quite faced that before. So, yes, look, maybe we are uh, a, li- a little overly despondent, but we will see. Yeah. We will see. I Twists and turns, I don't doubt. Twists and turns. All right. OK, we will take a little break here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. And from the Discord, I will start, James, if you don't mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Boonana says, I've seen comments on Tavares and Sambi coming in cold, so to speak, and that Arteta should have given them more minutes, etc., etc. But honestly, in that good run... Would you have changed a winning team? It's difficult. I think Arsenal have paid a little bit in that respect for not staying in the FA Cup uh, mm. and not having European football, Europa League football. Uh, although, to be fair, that's only really relevant in the first half of the season when it comes to rotation. Once you get into the knockout stages, you're basically playing your best team in there. Mm. Um, could they have been kept warmer? I mean... It, in the case of Tavares, I've always thought maybe he would have use as a kind of late substitute playing in wide areas, maybe in front of a fullback. We saw that for, I think it was literally just stoppage time against Wolves uh, away at Molyneux. But no, other than that, I mean, I guess you wouldn't necessarily bring him on, um, you know, during a game. Yeah, I I get that. I get that. And, And also you've got to remember that in his case... We were coming off a very troubling performance, right, against yeah. Forest. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one. Laconga, I'm a little bit surprised he's not been used more. But then Partey and Shaka basically play ninety minutes if they're available. Yeah. What do you think about that? I've, I've heard the argument, and I get the argument. I sort of I I see it more as a defence of the players' performances than I do as an indictment of the manager. To be frank, I think that's fair. Yeah, because. If you've got Europa League, if you've got FA Cup, you can give these guys minutes. But Lukonga in particular, he is the de facto party replacement. Party has been fantastic for us in, in 2022 since the turn of the year. You had that little brief spell away at AFCON and, and the suspension, of course, when he came back. But, you know, for the most part, he's been absolutely brilliant. Um, maybe people will say, well, you could take him off in games uh, and give him a bit of rest. But... What we haven't really had are the kind of score lines where at 70 minutes you go, you know what, I'll give this guy a run out. I can take off one of my best players, protect him, and I can give this young guy some confidence-boosting minutes. We, Great point. Yeah. A lot of them we've been hanging on, and we've needed those experienced players, and we've needed to maintain, I guess, a, a level of um, cohesion in in terms of team selection, um, like if the team out there is doing well and defending pretty well, you don't change it uh, until you get to the, you know, the final few minutes when it's Rob Holding time. Um, so he hasn't really had the ability to do that. And I think if you look at the first half that Sambi had, which I think was um, difficult uh, in part because he didn't really have enough support, to be honest. Um, and if you look at, the way Tavares has played, I mean, they could be damaging subs if you make them in a game where the scoreline is only a goal. You know what I mean? So mm. I understand. I, I mean, I do get the point. Uh, 
the more involved players are, the more rhythm they have, the more form they have, all that kind of stuff. But I can completely understand why they weren't, you know? We're also talking about a league where, as compared to the last couple of years, we've got three subs as opposed to five. Mm. And that's going to change. I think in a five-sub situation, these guys get a lot more minutes, um, possibly. But Mm. if you're thinking about what your three changes, well, usually you're changing the centre-forward because... You know, yeah. ninety minutes is difficult for any centre forward, let alone Alex Lacazette at the present time. Um, you might change a wide man because they cover a lot of ground. You might take Martin Odegaard off because of all the pressing he does. Before you know it, you've kind of used those subs. And mm. yes, you could you could potentially put Lukonga or, or Tavares in those roles, but I kind of understand why it hasn't happened. They have had strange seasons though, where in the first half of the season they probably played a lot more than anticipated, and it's almost felt like that's been. I don't know, consciously or otherwise, balanced out in the second half of the season. They yeah. spent a lot more time, you know, with the group at the training ground, but less time on the pitch. Um, mm. I mean, just on the Tavares, seeing as we're talking about it, uh, there was a question here from Doom and Guna. So I imagine this will be optimistic. <laughs> and uh, Doom and Guna on Twitter says, does Arteta have the tactical and psychological nous to use his selection mistakes on Saturday to, to an advantage with regards to Nuno? i.e. we tried to do it without you and it didn't work. We need you to step up and fill that void. The sort of humility that could repair the player. I, You know, I don't think it's about humility or... Like, we know what we know about Nuno Tavares based on what we've seen on the pitch. Um, this season, it's it's the Gattuso thing, isn't it? Sometimes maybe good, sometimes maybe shit. It's a little bit like that with Nuno, where he's had some really good moments, but he's also had some very, very difficult ones as well. And I know nobody really wants to hear it or likes to hear it, but managers' decisions, not just Mikel Arteta, are based on a lot more than what they do in 90 minutes or whenever they get a chance to play. There's training, their application, um, you know, what level they see from that player in training. And I'm not suggesting at all that Nuno is anything other than professional and trying his best and working hard as every player should do, you know, every pro should. But it's hard not to think that the reluctance or the lack of trust or the lack of faith in him is based on more than what we're seeing and that their informed decision in, in that sense is playing a part here. I mean, I just don't think we can afford to be down another player, which is why I'm I'm sort of interested in um, the idea of doing something different with the with the formation. So I had a question there where I think maybe you could get Tavares in if you wanted. I mean, what what do you think on that? Like from Doom and Gunnar, what's your opinion on that? Like if Mikel Arteta turned around and said to Nuno, right, you're starting away at Southampton on Saturday, you know, I believe in you again, even though I didn't believe in you on Saturday, so much so that I picked Granite Xhaka, even though I really, really needed Granite Xhaka in midfield, I still picked him at left back because, you know, I don't really trust you. But now I trust you. So go out there and do your thing. I I don't think it quite works like that. I think Nuno is a really (laughs) tricky player to analyse because I think we've seen some real extremes from him this season. I think there have been times going forward where he's looked really exciting and irrepressible. 
And I think there have been times defensively where he's been really poor. Like, mm. I, I can I can name, you know, h- half a dozen examples of where he's made a basic mistake that's cost us a goal or close to it. And you get players like Cedric on the other flank who never brings you that spectacular side that Nuno does going forward. But... And, and, you know, will occasionally look defensively suspect, but not in as egregious or obvious a fashion. Mm. You know, they're kind of more, I don't know how to put it, they're more level. And so, you know, and I think as fans, we might be guilty of seeing the best in a player and projecting that, well, in three years' time, that's just who they'll be. Mm. Um, And I do wonder if we've done a bit of that with Nuno. And is he actually as good as he's looked? I mean... Or is he as bad as he's looked? Mm. And I, I honestly don't know, but I, I think I think it's open to debate and I can understand a manager having reservations. Uh, ultimately, unpredictability is not a great quality in a fullback. Um, well, it is in the opposition half, but... Is it? Yeah, but is it worth it? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it, yeah. It, do you know what I mean? Like, I know exactly what you mean by that, but there's very few fullbacks who... Are good enough that they can sort of get away with that, um, mm. and I'm not sure if he is one, yet, and certainly not yet. Do I think he could be rehabilitated? I mean, yeah, like 22 year old player who doesn't start a game mm. after a poor performance. Yeah, there has to be a, a way back. I mean, players have really difficult nights and they recover from it. I don't know. I, I think it's worth... We've got a load of questions about the, sh- the shape of the team and if yeah. that should change. Maybe we should address those because I think that might incorporate a bit of this discussion. Okay, there, there was one from Ian Mills, uh, who's at Ian AFC 71 on Twitter. He said, hi, Andrew and James. I was there on Saturday and it was painful viewing. Would you pick a system now and stick with it for the remainder of the season or go game by game depending on the opposition? Saturday felt like Arteta uh, changed too much to try to overcome the injuries um and I've, I've seen questions about like going to a back three for example and i'm curious as to what you think about that because that might well be a way of getting players on the pitch and addressing what he sees it's clear he sees this as a problem left back it's clear mm. it's a problem for him you know as we've articulated you don't pick your best slash most important central midfielder, the one at least that's available to you, at left back when you badly need him in midfield if you don't view that position or your options there as as a particular problem. So do you think it's possible that we might, in a, um, you know, try and offset that by, well, basically doing away with left back altogether, going to a back three, whether it's a 3-4-3, three, three, a 3-5-2, three, whatever it could be, um, and just doing something different with the players that we have in order to get, um, A, to change the dynamic, if you like, um, and make us maybe a, a bit less predictable, um, but again, to, to, to cover up that, that key area of weakness. I think there is a certain appeal to it. I mean, let's just play it out. So I guess you bring Rob Holding in next to White and Gabrielle. Um, who do you play as the center? Who do you play as like your your sweeper, if you like, in that back three? 
Uh, I think I, I don't know. I think you've got a few options. I mean, when Holding has come on in games, he's tended to play in the centre. Yeah. Um, whether or not they would do that from the start, I don't know. But, you know, you'd imagine it'd be Gabriel on the left-hand side, you'd think. But you can mm. you can put Holding out there. He's played there. Um, but I imagine it would be Gabriel on the left-hand side, especially if you weren't operating with a sort of conventional left-back. I think you'd want someone who was really comfortable in that channel. Yeah, the left-footer, yeah. Yeah, I think it'd be holding in the middle, to be honest, and then white to the right-hand side. I imagine you'd go Cedric right wing-back. Uh, you you could go Tavares um, as left wing-back. You could go Saka as well. You though, could go you? Saka as well, which I think might hold even more mm. appeal to Arteta. Then I guess you would go Shaka and Lekonga, and then three ahead of that. So, I don't know, Odegaard... Uh, Martinelli and Smith Rowe potentially yeah. um, on, paper. <laughs> on paper I like the sound of it I think that the, 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 the question will be does Arteta sort of deem that a regressive step to go to the yeah. third centre half I'm not sure it matters at this point of the season I think it's just about churning out results however you can at this stage isn't it I think we're at that point yeah we're at that point based on What's happened in the last week, I think, has changed the, like, whatever pure football ideals you have, they need sometimes to be compromised to get results. And more experienced managers than Mikel Arteta have um, have done that in the past. Uh, Arsene Wenger, do you remember one season, did we, like, win a load of games 1-0 or 2-1 or something? It might have been... Might have been the season when we lost the North London derby, and I think Thomas Formalen made a big mistake for a goal, and he just brought in Per Mertesacker alongside Lauren Cashelny. Yeah. He might have changed the goalkeeper as well. I can't recall. Maybe Fabianski yeah, came in. Not maybe, sure. But we we won a lot of games. One nil and two one, and that yeah. you know, like it wasn't good for the heart or the stomach. Um, but it was effective. And I just wonder if that might be the focus now. It's like, okay, let's put what we want to do to one side. Like we can all, we've when things were good, right? When we were winning games, we were all talking about like how transformational it would be for this Arsenal team to have a good striker and how much... Um, let's say a more mobile, agile player in that Granite Xhaka role where he was playing as kind of the left eight, what that would bring to the team. We were seeing mm. the potential of what we could become, but we don't have Xhaka in that role now and we don't have a centre forward of any kind of description. So I feel like we've got to we've got to just try and A, make ourselves a little less predictable, um, I think that's been an issue maybe in the last couple of weeks as well, where teams know pretty much what we're going to do and how we're going to try and do it. So finding a way around that, um, as well as trying to address some of the the positional problems that we have, could well facilitate or could well bring about a change of formation. Yeah, I mean, the only thing... I, I think that kind of three-at-the-back idea has some merit. The only thing I wonder is, like, do you need to go that far? You know, if you just put Shaka next to Lakonga at the base of midfield, mm. would that give you enough stability to play somebody like a Tavares or like a Saka in the, in the left-back mm. role? Um, 
I mean, that that is an option as well. I mean, I, I personally, I can understand complete reluctance to use Bakayo Saka at left back mm-hmm. because we, we don't goals. we need goals and he scores goals and you know he's our leading goal scorer joint leading goal scorer so it seems reductive to move him to left back but i just wonder if the the lack of faith in Nuno is such that you may not have any choice if you want to stick with a back four you know and you can bring Nicolas Pepe in or you can play you know front three of well yeah Pepe, Martinelli, Smith Rowe. Yeah. yeah, I mean Pepe's a kind of wild card possibility, isn't he? Is, he? Who, you know. Um I, I do wonder if having switched to a back three ish kind of system in the last couple of games, that might be where this is going. Mm. Uh I do wonder about that. And we speak about Arteta's trust in players. I think Rob Holding is one of those that he does trust, maybe more so than some of the alternatives he could bring into the starting eleven. So mm. Perhaps that will... And we know he's not averse to the formation. He's used it plenty of times in the past. Um, so I do wonder, yeah, Southampton away, could we see that? Um, there's a question here about Emil Smith-Rowe from Phil Costo who said, right. Smith-Rowe struggled again as the interior on Saturday. Personally, I don't think he's suited already for that role at this stage in his development, although he could be in future. Arteta seems to view it differently. What's your guys' take? I think he could be a player who who fits that role quite well, but I agree he's not there yet. He's not there yet. Um, yeah, I'm not convinced. Arteta's certain that he is either. Well, I mean, I think yeah. The I think the decision to pick him there was because he had Saka or Shaka left back. He did talk about it in the press conference afterwards, didn't he? Where he said we thought Emil could, you know, get into those spaces or whatever it might be, whatever he was expecting from Brighton. He thought that Smith Rowe um, would offset the absence of of Granite Shaka in midfield, which ultimately didn't prove to be the case. I, I like I can't help looking at Smith Rowe and thinking he's not 100. percent I think he's carrying a knock of some kind, to be honest. Um, which I'm sure many players are, but I, I I don't think he's quite there yet in his development. Um, but I think he's got all the all the qualities and all the technical ability to play that role at some point, but just not quite at this point. But then you know, I hear people talking about using him as a a false nine, and I know we did it against Villarreal, and it didn't particularly work. Um, so I wonder if, like, is that something that we'd be asking too much of, too, if you, if you use Smith-Rowe as a, as a false nine? Like, the sample size of Smith-Rowe at false nine is very small, you know? I don't think you, it didn't work against Villarreal, but I don't think you can say definitively that it will never work. And it's something Arteta spoke about a couple of weeks ago. But, yeah, he just hasn't looked quite at the, at the pace um, of the last two games for me and I just wonder if he's carrying something that's maybe a bit more significant than we know could be I don't know but yeah I, I think um, he was picked in that position because of other absentees I agree he's better in the wide areas for now and I think you know he's one of his real strengths is his off the ball movement and I think often on the interior we don't see as much of that his ability to kind of run diagonally inside people and beyond people um I think he's really, really good in that respect. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting. I mean, you know, that's one of the things we haven't said, but 
It was one of the rare occasions on uh, Saturday of seeing Martinelli, Odegaard, Smith-Rowe and Saka in the same starting eleven. Yeah, I mean, um, that was Ostensibly an exciting prospect. On, on paper. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I have to say, you know, when I, th- when I saw Saka at left-back, I was like, oh, I don't like that. You know, for various reasons, um, I don't like it. But I was pleased to see those four in the team because it felt like, well, okay, he's accepted that, um, you know, Shaka left back is not the ideal, but we're going to try and offset that with four mm. exciting attacking players. And that aspect Had of we it... played like, well, that's yeah. what we'd all be talking about. Yeah, no yeah, doubt. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's an interesting thing. I had a conversation, the Athletic, you know, they ring me up before the game and they're like, so what are you thinking? You know, what are you thinking you might do? And I was like, well, obviously Shaka at left back could be a thing, but... You know, if Arsenal play well, everyone's going to be talking about the Fab Four. Mm. Needless to say, I did not write that piece. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you have these um, um, uh, these ideas about these what... These dreams what, yeah, and aspirations. What could possibly happen and how good it could be, but... Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, over to you if you've got one. Okay, here is one from Pete, who's on Twitter, at PeteHines8. Um, I've seen it suggested that uh, due to Kieran Tierney's injury history, that if a suitable offer comes in for him, that we should cash in. Do you agree? He's a fan favourite and a fantastic player, but availability is an issue. Uh, it all depends what you can get in, doesn't it? I mean, it's sorry to dodge the question, but mm. I'm not desperate to get rid of him right now, seeing the problems his absence has, has given us. But I guess I understand the point. The point is, is he a player who you have to accept? Mm. There are going to be absences. Um, it's just tricky, the Tavares thing. I mean, ostensibly, we needed a, a left-back to provide cover for Kieran Tierney. Mm. You know sometimes you need cover for Kieran Tierney. We've got a guy in, and at the moment, it feels like it's not working out. Mm. It leaves you in a slightly awkward position come the summer. What do you do? Um, Beg said Klasnach to come back. <laughs> I <laughs> Would I sell... I don't think so. No, I think he's too uh, important, and I don't think replacing him would be as straightforward as some imagine. So I don't. I think I would resist that. Yeah, I would too. I would too. But I get the point about availability yeah, and when a you know um, when a player is absent, if you don't have the the depth to cover him, then it becomes a problem. And we're seeing that in midfield as well, where at the moment there's obviously a very big gulf in quality and experience between Thomas Partey and, and Sambi, you know? Um, and that's not being critical of him, but this is a squad depth issue. And they tried to address it at least in the summer with um, with Tavares, but it, it hasn't worked out as well as, as we would like, otherwise Tavares would be would be playing when Tierney is absent, you know? Um, yeah, it's just one of those tricky ones where if every season a player has a significant injury, and I think he has had either a significant or untimely injury in every season that he's been here, then you kind of have to start factoring that into how you build your squad, right? Because, mm, like, true. if you think about... If you think about Granit Xhaka, like, Mikel Arteta doesn't have much to worry about in terms of his availability. 
because he's a fairly... There it is, guys. There's the jinx. There it is. It, clip yeah. that up. <laughs> but you know what I mean? He's No, I know. He's like in whatever, five, six seasons, he's had one injury of any um, significance. And that's something that as a manager, I guess you, you factor into your thinking and your planning when you're looking at your squad. Um, but if a guy is injury prone or if he's a little bit brittle or if, you know a kick here and a kick there can put him out for 10 weeks at a time, then, like, you'd be mad not to start thinking about it. I mean, we had this in the past, didn't we, with with people like Aaron Ramsey, same discussion, Aaron Ramsey, Jack Wilshire. The talent is there, but can you really rely on them to be fit for the whole season? And unfortunately, I, I really like Kieran Tierney. I think he's a great player too. Unfortunately, that's kind of the direction we're going in with him where mm. you can't be certain that he's going to be available at key moments when you absolutely need him. And I'm not blaming him or, or anything like that. That's just the way it goes sometimes with a player. So I wouldn't sell him, but I think I would be looking a lot harder at a left back in the summer than I thought we might need to. And whether that's game over for Nuno, I don't quite know, but... You need to be able, in a situation like the one we face this week, when your backup left back is not available, you need to have sufficient faith in your, or when your main left back is not available, you need to have sufficient faith in the backup uh, in order to to play him. Because otherwise you just, yeah, you end up with stuff like, yeah, you end up with stuff like um, that display against Brighton, um, which was, informed not completely the fault of Xhaka left back or, or as we said earlier Xhaka not being in midfield you know here's Ali Syed on Twitter Ali, Ali Sweden asking the big question in the event we finish outside the top four say fifth is the season a failure oh is it a failure um it's a tough one because we've been in such a good position. I think if you look at results like Palace and Brighton and they're the reason why we finished outside the top four, I think you could probably say that is a a failure of sorts, if you know what I mean, from the position that we were in. It's one of these where there's a lot of questions like about, well... Should we be that worried about finishing outside the top four because nobody thought we could get in the top four at the start of the season? Mm. Which is fair. I saw another question like, well, if somebody had told you we were going to be one point off or whatever it is, I I haven't looked at the league table this weekend because it's just too painful. But like if someone said with eight games to go, we were just, you know, a point off the top four, would you have taken it? And it's like, yes, of course you would. Of course you would. But it strips it away of the context of why we're in this position with eight games to go rather than, you know, being much more comfortable after two wins against teams that, you know, realistically you, you need to win games against if you are going to get in the top four. So I think it failure would be just a touch harsh, but it'd be very disappointing, really disappointing based on where we are. And the two results that I think of really, um, knackered us are, are like if you lose to Liverpool and Man City and you end up outside the top four you go well you know 
they're they're so much better than we are. But losing to Palace and Brighton doesn't give you that same level of comfort, does it? No, although the team that finishes in fourth will have lost plenty of games like that, whoever they are. Um, yeah. I suspect this season. I think. I think. I, I think the point about you know we've been in such a good position this season, therefore it's a failure. I I completely understand it, but we were also in really bad position at points this season, mm. and so I sort of can't quite come round to the idea that it, it would be a failure to finish you know fifth or sixth. I think it would be really disappointing. As I said in part one, we're all super, super invested in this and desperately want it. And my suspicion is now it won't happen. I, mm. I think it probably won't. Um, I think we probably needed from these three games, including the Southampton game, to kind of churn out a few more points before yeah. some very tough games coming up. Because um, we leave ourselves in a position now where we have to win the kind of games that we haven't really won this season. Um, big, big, difficult ones. Mm. Um, so no, I don't, I, I probably would stop short of failure, but I would certainly accept disappointment. But I am in that mind frame. I mean, I think I texted you after the Palace game and said, given the injuries and the kind of sudden evaporation of form, you know, I, I well, I, I'm, I was a little bit worried about top six. At yeah, all. I mean, I watched um, your I watched your video on on Saturday. You know, you're on the yeah. whistle video, and and in that you were clearly very worried about uh, where we might end up and whether or yeah. not um, we get European football at all next season. I mean, I think this is this is a challenge, and that's a reality that Mikel Arteta is going to have to f- uh, face. I think no European football or or the Conference League thing. I think that would be a failure, no question. I don't about think anyone. I, yeah, I think very. I don't think many would argue with that at all at this stage. I certainly would. And in fact, I was probably one of the few Arsenal fans who saw some results at the weekend that gave them some satisfaction because United lost and West Ham lost. Mm. And I'm now in a position where I'm looking down as well as up. That you know. Yeah. I I, I think it would be a travesty really for Arsenal to finish outside the top six, given everything we've fought for this season. Um, But it's interesting, you know, I think the way you finish a season really matters to fans. Arguably, maybe more than it should. Like in the past, we've been, we've seen like a terrible season and we've won the last five games against teams that are on the beach and thought, oh, everything's all right. And equally, you can have a good season, you uh, you know, but if you collapse at the end, that's what people remember. Of course, yeah. Like yeah. if it, you know, with some reason, the end is what counts, and so it's just absolutely vital we stop the rot. It's just vital we find mm. a way to stop the rot by any means necessary, like systems and the future of the team and development. I think we're at the point where that all sort of goes out the window, to be honest. you just got to get points on the board. You've got to stabilise this. And if we finish in the top four, that would be fantastic. But we've got to have that top six place. It's the next step for the club and for the team. Yeah. It's got to happen. 
Um, well, I mean, there were a couple of questions. One on the Discord, Aaron says, can the project continue successfully if we only get top six this year or only if we get top six? Um, and Ali, uh, Ali Boy 82 on Twitter, Alistair Wood says, if the season ends badly and we miss out on Europe again, would you A, extend Arteta's contract anyway, uh, leave the decision on extending it until his current one expires at the end of next season or sack him at the end of, of this season? I guess that's going to be a discussion that um, people will or fans and certainly will have if we miss out on, on top six and it hammers home just how important European football is next season. Yeah, I mean, listen, there are plenty of fans who are like, if Arsenal fail to get top four, the manager should be sacked. There, there are some fans who feel that strongly about it. Um, I'm not in that camp. I think that, for example, even if we'd won these two games... You know, I still think with the fixture list ahead of us, top four would still be a challenge. Um, I don't think it can be... It was never a given, even Mm. if it may have felt like it at one stage. But I think... And to be honest, I think, like, if... How can I put it? If we'd completely bombed in the first half of the season, like, if if that opening run had extended, but the manager had stayed in his job, and then he turned it round at Christmas and pulled us up and we'd finished, like seventh or eighth in a funny way i think you can survive that better this is what i'm saying about the end of the season sure. mattering. i know you can you survive that better than being in the contention for top four and falling away at the last minute that sense of bottling it or or you know underwhelming at the finish lives with people in a far stronger way yeah um so if we were to tumble out of the top six which i, I I'm worried about, but I don't think it's I don't think it's a probability at this stage, you know. But I think it, I'm mm. worried about it. Then, yeah, I think you would certainly have to think very, very carefully about what you did about the manager, yeah, um, and certainly about a new contract. But I think you know we're we're stir- we're, we're we're talking we're straying into kind of I'm catastrophizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's it's. It's that when things are bad, it's easy to see how bad everything could possibly be. And when things are good, it's much easier to see how, yeah. how things... Um... If we beat Southampton, then, you know, suddenly the conversation will change, I imagine. Yeah. But it's it's the nature of things. But I don't know, where do you stand on, on all of that? Um, I mean, I think we need European football next season to maintain the trajectory and, and faith in whatever this plan is um, and this project. And we all know that there are pieces missing, significant pieces in this team that are missing and need to be improved. Um, so that's got to happen with either Mikel Arteta or somebody else anyway. It's, I guess it's just about, um, about how this season ends. And I don't, yeah, I don't feel like going down the like, well, if, we lose all our games. What should happen? You know, I think we all kind of yeah. know what will happen if, if we Arteta lose all our games. If Arteta sacrifices Nuno Tavares on the pitch. Yeah. Should he go um, to jail for murder? Yes, he should. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's that. But, I, you know, I'm worried. I'm worried like you are because the fixture list is tough. It's really yeah. tough. But similarly, the fixture list is potentially... Um, it's potentially how do I what's the word I'm looking for here? Like if you win some of those games, it could be really significant for your chances of finishing top four, you know? And I know they're really difficult, but then 
Every well, game I mean, if different. you go to Tottenham and win, everything changes. Yeah. You know? Having already beaten Chelsea and Manchester United. <laughs> you know? No, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm joking, but I'm kind of yeah. not joking. Tell I me mean, a contract. It's, it, is, it is one of those fi- runs of fixtures where it's going to feel like being absolutely kicked up and down um, in the bollocks the whole way, or you're walking on air because of how much the points mean because of the teams that you're taking the points off, you know? Mm, so, absolutely. Like, I'm not saying yeah, I'm hugely it, confident. I'm just saying that, like, it is so you're possible. you're guaranteeing <laughs> top four at this point, are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Why not? Why not? The predictatrons are a mess already, aren't they? I know, yeah, yeah. I already, I already deleted the spreadsheet. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> We don't need Thank to look back on that. There's we, no evidence of it anywhere no, on the internet. We uh, absolutely do not want to look back, back and listen to it. Can I ask you another question here? And I know we talked about it a bit in the um, in the in the first half of the show, but there were a couple of questions. Um, N Wharton UK on the disc on the Discord. How can it take them four minutes? And Booten Schlenk says, should there be a timer on VAR? So if they can't make a decision within a certain uh, period of time, it defaults to the on-field call. I can see some issues with this, but maybe the benefits outweigh the issues it might cause. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's a way... They're supposed to be doing automated offside soon, aren't they? They're trialling that at the present. Uh, it's coming what up, I think. What could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> it's like... Well, to it's be like fair, the those, goal line technology yeah. appears very good, very reliable. Mm. I haven't... And, you know, Hawkeye and tennis and it's had its applications in cricket as well has been pretty effective. I kind of... I think automation, it at least means that we're not having the sort of the human debate. Do you know what I mean? Of like... How can he make that decision? It takes it out of a person's hands. I think mm. that might be kind of healthier in some respect. I don't like it. I don't like VAR. I liked it as it was with the wrong decisions. I know it sounds crazy, but that's what I preferred. Mm. Um, but, you know, we are where we are now. I think um, time limit's interesting. I mean, to be honest, whether or not there's a time limit, the common sense thing should have stood on Saturday, which was we don't know. We can't prove this, but maybe a time limit is necessary to make that clear. I mean, four minutes is absurd, right? I mean, the the thing about it is it's four minutes and they still didn't come to a conclusion and they ruined the best thing about a game of football, which is a goal being scored. When you scored, of course, not when the opposition scored. Ruin the opposition's goals as much as you like, as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, that moment in the stadium where you've scored a goal and you've celebrated and then... All of a sudden, you're standing around and you're water, you're wondering and you're worrying, and four minutes later, they can't come to a definitive conclusion, so they just disallow the goal. What's the point yeah. of that? Beyond any doubt, VAR has uh, damaged the goal celebration for a supporter. Yeah, you sense it in a ground. The looks over towards the referee, towards the touchline, immediate. Yeah. It's all there. Like there's there's a hesitancy about that, which is so utterly tragic, in my opinion. Mm. Um, but there you go. Uh, I guess there's just too much money at stake for yeah for the, for the, for them to incur that element of risk. But yeah, time limit. Yeah, why not? Why not? I mean, yeah. put some pressure on the fuckers. I say, give them sixty seconds, and if they can't work it out. 
Play the countdown clock. Yeah. Make it a bit like Make it like Squid Game, where if they don't get it in 60 <laughs> seconds, <laughs> you, get, you kill them. Just kill them. I mean, I do think transparency is an issue. Like, I, I, we might all be a bit more relaxed about that decision if we had heard the workings out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But the reason they don't want to share the workings out is because... Half the time they're making one. it up, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But I do think that is the next step for us to be able to hear the dialogue at least. So so we understand how they've arrived at that decision yeah. because on Saturday I've got no clue. No. No, me neither. I'm sure there'll be a th- th- Twitter thread today from Dale Johnson about triangulation that will explain it all away. <laughs> but I'm yeah. not having it. The shadow of Martinelli compared to the shadow of Cucaracha. Yeah. And yeah, it it didn't work. It didn't work out. Um, um, I liked this question, by the go way. Go on, uh, Mark G on the Discord. A lot has been made of the fans finding a connection with the club recently. Two bad losses, and that seems to be falling apart. Are the fans experiencing a temporary dip in form, or do you think they were just having a purple patch over the last few months? <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? You were there. Do the fans need to up their game? Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we've got a lot of younger fans in the Emirates Stadium this season. A lot of people have spoken about that. But with that comes inconsistency. Yeah. You know? um, These young fans can't run on the pitch and just, Shaka, get into midfield, you fucking idiot. What are you doing? <laughs> You don't play there. Don't mind the manager. You just get into midfield and spray some passes. Exactly. Uh, that's yeah. good. I was nicely worded. Let me ask you this one. We'll have one final one uh, before we go because I saw a lot of debate about this over the weekend as well. Uh, Aiden Kabudi says, and he's at Aiden Kabudi. He says, this weekend there's been a lot of debate about the Liverpool versus Man City rivalry versus Arsenal versus Man City rivalry. Where do you guys stand? Personally, I like this Liverpool City because of quality football. Arsenal... United never produced this quality. I, I wonder how old that fan is. Because I don't know. I'm not sure that's fair. I'm not sure that's accurate. Mm. I think football was different in the 90s and 2000s. But they were good teams. Really good teams. I mean, set aside the Invincibles, like that United 1999 team for example, was an absolutely brilliant team and Arsenal pushed them all the way Mm. in the league in the FA Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that, you know, football has evolved and coaching has evolved and the athleticism is different and it's comparing apples and oranges. But those were really good teams. And also, like, there was a... It depends what you're into, I think. Like, for me, the drama of that rivalry, it's difficult because I'm biased, I'm an Arsenal fan, but Mm. the drama, the enmity that existed, you know, it's lovely seeing Klopp and Guardiola have a little hug at the end, but, like, I'd far rather see Ferguson and Vegas sort of stare at each other with hatred in their eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's much more compelling, dramatically, when there is that kind of animosity. Mm. Um, So, yeah. And I'm an Arsenal fan, so for me, the Arsenal United was just a, a brilliant rivalry in its own right, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that this current one is, no. is better. I mean, I think City, City and Liverpool are two brilliant teams, no doubt about it. And I think what what was slightly mischaracterised over the uh, the weekend, I think Jamie Carragher tweeted about like 
the two best teams in the world. This is the best rivalry, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, when Arsenal and United were um, at their pomp with their rivalry, there were great teams across Europe. Mm. You know what I mean? Barcelona, Real Madrid. Um, the the, the level was, was more level. It was much more level. That's exactly the point. And now I think it's fair to say Liverpool and Man City are the two best teams in the world because, you know, um, you know, Real Madrid are having problems, even if they can be quite spectacular. Barcelona in a rebuilding phase. Bayern Munich, you know, maybe not quite what they once were, but likely to win the Bundesliga because that's just what they do. The Italian clubs, not what they were. But, you know, when Arsenal and United were doing it, there were there were other great teams out there in Europe. Um, but I think it's wrong, completely wrong, to dismiss the quality of the football that was on display in those uh, in those games between Arsenal and Manchester United. It was phenomenal at times. They were brilliant football matches with brilliant players. Um, and I think when people think about modern football, like would this team fare well in the modern game? Would they be able to cope with the intensity of modern football? Just look at the quality of the players across those teams, you know? And mm. I've no doubt that if you have like a time machine right now and you bring back players like Patrick Vieira, Roy Keane, Dennis Bergkamp, Thierry Henry, that they wouldn't be able to perform at a high level in, in this era. It's just nonsense. Of course they would. The the, the talent and the ability um, and their footballing, uh, yeah, it's, they were off the charts. So maybe football was a bit more physical back then. Maybe you could get away with a bit more of the, of the physical aspect of the game, but it doesn't diminish the quality of the football uh, for me. I think they were brilliant, uh, brilliant teams, brilliant rivalry, uh, and like you say, it had that it had that bit of edge to it, which maybe Liverpool and Man City doesn't have, um, simply because of the 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 way the managers are. Maybe that's just a different part of it as well. But like, yeah, the stylistic differences. Like, I'm I mean, pretty, the other thing is, I, I just can't get excited about anything. Like, I find Manchester City talk about cold atmospheres. Yeah. they just leave me very cold. Same, like it's sterile. It's brilliantly sterile. For me, anyway. Yeah, and so I can't muster the same sort of enthusiasm. I watched the game, don't get me wrong, and I was full of admiration for the technical level of the players, the intensity. Um, but yeah, it doesn't stir me in the same way. But it's difficult for me to separate my own allegiances from it as well. Mm. I mean, I do feel like if he wanted to, Jurgen Klopp could devour... Pep Guardiola with basically one bite. Mm. Maybe that's something we'll if see. If that happened, then I will reassess yeah. the rivalry. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Uh, we'll leave it up to uh, Jurgen Klopp to uh, to show us what he can do in in that regard, as well as his ability. He's got the as a teeth for it. He definitely does. I feel like he could just you know the way a snake can detach its jaw. I feel like he could just go <laughs> and then just yeah. swallow a Pep in one bite-sized bite, a little a little tapas of Pep Guardiola for, for Jurgen Klopp. All right. Well, look, I think we better leave it there. Are you feeling okay? We got through it, I think. Feeling all right now? Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm all right. Okay. I'm all right. All right. Well, I hope uh, you guys Are listening... Are you all right, though, Andrew? Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I probably need coffee and something to eat. 
and then I think I'll feel better and we can look ahead to uh, look ahead to the weekend. It feels like it's more about your hangover than about the football. Yeah, to be honest. a little bit. Anyway, look, I'm looking forward to Lacazette at left back against Southampton, as I'm sure all of you are. <laughs> uh, thank you as ever for being here. I hope you enjoyed the show and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.